Before we get into uh, this week's episode of Dangerously Likely, some of you may have noticed that we have a special crossover bonus episode that came out on Tuesday, last Tuesday, and it is with our good friend and host of the podcast, Go Black Boy Go, Jalen Thompson. And we would love if you took a listen to not only our episode with Jalen Thompson, but technically part one of this crossover special is on his podcast, Go Black Boy Go. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Torrance. And I'm Terrell. And we're Dangerously Likely to talk about Afghanistan. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. On Monday, the Biden administration announced that the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP benefits, or more commonly referred to as food stamp benefits, will jump 27% above pre-pandemic levels starting in October, the largest increase in the program's history. This increase in benefits, which have long been championed by advocates, is occurring as a result of an update in the Thrifty Food Plan, which determines the amount of benefits distributed after reassessing the estimated cost of groceries on a budget-conscious diet for a family of four. This assessment was mandated by the Farm Bill passed in 2018 by the then-Republican-led Congress that tasked the agency with reassessing the standard before 2022 and then every five years thereafter. With this revision, families will see a $36 a month increase on average. Before the pandemic, families on SNAP received an average of $121 a month, and come October, that average will rise to $169 a month. Quote, a modernized thrifty food plan is more than a commitment to good nutrition. It's an investment in our nation's health, economy, and security, said Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. Quote, ensuring low-income families have access to a healthy diet helps prevent disease, supports children in the classroom, reduces health care costs, and more. And the additional money families will spend on groceries helps grow the food economy, creating thousands of new jobs along the way, end quote, said the agricultural secretary. Caleb, this is a welcome news for the millions of American families that receive nutrition assistance through SNAP benefits, especially given the increased need during the global pandemic. What are your thoughts on this increase and what it means for some American families? I think this is a really big fucking deal. Um, There's 42 million Americans that are on this. That's one in eight Americans are get basically get their food through this program. And $36 a month to us may not seem like a lot, but the science says that it is, it is enough to, to create a more nutritious kind of um, diet for a lot of these people that are on this program. And I think I think it's great, and I, what makes me even more happy about this is the fact that it's meant to be permanent, yes, and not changed, which is awesome. And I got to say, like, like I've noticed the Biden administration kind of, not kind of, they've been like the child tax credit and whatnot. They've had more of a focus on like homelessness and poverty, and like these policies are really going to set us up for a better future, especially for those. We're experiencing homelessness and poverty right now. Absolutely, and I would say specifically, uh, childhood poverty and childhood hunger uh, has been has a real been a real um, initiative of this administration thus far. Between uh, the last bill as well as, the, the, I mean, this is to, to be fair, as a result of something that was mandated by uh, a Republican led bill, something that did have uh, bipartisan support at the time, but was a Republican led bill, and so I think that this as a result of a mandate uh, is, is a really positive thing. I also think that. Um, 
it's really important to touch on the fact that we know that our economy and our wages are not commensurate with the inflation and the increase of cost of the cost of living over the last four to five decades. And um, I think that some people just forget that people who are on food stamps and receive SNAP benefits are not what I think that are typically depicted um, stereotypically or in television shows or, or in really um, unfair representations of, of people who receive this benefit. Um, in, in full disclosure, as a young kid, this is something that made the huge, a huge difference for my family and whether we could get by and afford our, and afford our basic needs because we had this additional assistance um, for the cost of food. That th This allows for families um, to, to afford those things that otherwise would be um, out of their expenses because of course food comes first survival comes first right like this is the difference between a family being able to have a computer for their kids to use when they you know for for their schoolwork or being able to pay for their monthly their monthly internet bill like these are things that like can can really have a, a huge impact and i think that we often look at them in a in a silo or, or through this one lens of, of a of an assistance program right a federal assistance program when i really think that it is a solution or a helps patch a, a larger problem in our economy for the first time, the federal government has declared a water shortage at Lake Mead in Arizona due to long-term drought conditions taking a toll on the Colorado River. For the most part, the water supply cuts resulting from this will only affect farmers in Arizona, but it is expected that more cuts will come in the next few years as climate change-driven droughts continue to get worse. The Colorado River water supply cuts could, in the future, affect up to 40 million people who rely on the river's water supply. Torrance, I've talked a lot about climate change on our podcast and I know Terrell has too. And it's just a dire situation all around, especially with that UN climate report that came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, what is your reaction to this first ever uh, uh, water shortage declared by the federal government? I think that it puts, um, it puts this issue that I think some people allow themselves to create real space um, mentally from especially people who don't live in places in this country that are have largely already been affected by the effects of climate change um that we all need water we all understand the need for uh the the basis of life which which is h2o and i think that in a place like colorado where people all often associate that with obviously the mountains with with skiing with lots of snow that a place like mm -hmm. that having a water shortage i think um really puts it into into you know glaring reality for people who have who have been able to distance themselves from this really important issue and it, it sucks but i mean we're already we're we already experiencing the um effects of climate change um on, on on both the west coast and the east coast with the change in in hurricanes and the change in wildfires um and i think that as we start to, to, to hit the uh, the heartland of America, maybe this will open some people's eyes to the reality of this problem because we, that's been the really frustrating thing about climate change, right? Is that like those of us who understand it, believe it, and know that this is something that is important for us to address immediately. Um, this this has been really painful because it's like we are dependent on the behavior of our fellow man to actually fix this problem. This is not something us as individuals or even as a, um, a, a large voting mass in this country can make a, a big enough a big enough impact on to, to change the course that we are on. This is going to have to be something that we take on as a country, but also as a, an entire globe. And I think that that starts with, with convincing the people here. And so hopefully uh, as negative as this is of news, I think that it could serve a purpose of really opening up the conversation and dialogue around climate change and what this really means about the real changes we have to make as a nation um, in the way that we engage with our natural resources. Yeah. You know, I think, something that we're really good at doing as a country is uh, not understanding the height of the problem until it directly affects us individually. And 
like I'm not saying that we should wait for terrible things like this to happen to affect people to get those people on our side to do something about climate change. But I I do hope that as the UN climate report said, the next 30 years, there's no going back, but we can stop it um, after that. If we do stuff now, I do hope that a plus of us of the next 30 years is people realizing the real gravity of the situation and that we do need to do something. Um, and this is just another one of those. It's another one of those climate disasters that will affect more people than are probably used to um, being affected by what is climate change. And obviously I don't want anybody to get hurt or anything like that, but I do hope that it awakens a lot of people um, to fully understand that it's going to take all of us to fix this. Caleb, well, I know you and Troll will be talking foreign policy and the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan later in the show. Um, there are a few other global stories I thought that we should highlight. After the assassination of Haitian president that rocked the go Haitian government, they are now battling a second crisis. Haiti, the Haiti death toll following a 7.2 magnitude earthquake rises to 1,419 people with 6,000 injured. Per the Associated Press, some 30,000 families have been displaced as the country braces for heavy rain from a tropical storm in the region, only exacerbating the existing issues. For links to the organization sending relief to Haiti, head to the link in our bio. Per Reuters, voting has begun in Germany's federal election by mail. As Angela Merkel plans to step down after 16 years leading the state, her heir apparent faces slumping poll numbers and a possibility of coalition government between Social Democrats, the Green Party, and the Free Democrats. And we'll be right back. And we're back. Honestly, Terrell, where do we begin? Following the scenes out of Afghanistan, I feel we have to share our grief and concern as the Afghan people navigate life under the Taliban regime. Our thoughts and prayers go out to the families that are unable to feel safe in their own nation. So what's your reaction to, to Afghanistan falling? Like, are we surprised, I guess? Um, <laughs> I I feel like there's a lot of context missing here, right? I think I think my reaction is one of frustration because... For over 20 years, we've allowed our leaders, our media outlets to really set a narrative and paint a picture. I mean, just before we started recording, Caleb, you and I were talking about it of like, for a solid 18 years, the conversation was why we needed to get out. We we very quickly transitioned from the space of um, needing to be there, needing to do these things, and then the unthinkable happened with an administration connecting with the Taliban and coming up with agreement. And then it became, should we leave or is the job really done? And then it transitioned into this, we can't leave, we can't do these things. And I just, I personally feel that no one in our country truly and fully understands the story of Afghanistan. They don't understand who the Taliban is or, or why we should hate them or why we should have disdain for them. And there's this, I don't want to use the word indoctrination or manipulation or whatever you want to say, but there's this feeling now that we, we have to be there and we didn't do a good job. And there's this warning of placing blame on president Biden, which in some sense is justifiable, but the agreement that was made came out of the Trump administration. But even before all of that, 
we we are the reason the Taliban exists. In the 1970s, we had Operation um, Cyclone, where we sent $2 billion worth of military um, artillery to Afghanistan to help play or ward off a proxy war during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And because of our mismanagement of that um, those weapons, that weaponry, we allowed for a group like the Taliban to get those weapons and help them get into power later. The only reason we got into a war with the Taliban to begin with is not because they did something wrong and we had a moral code there, but because they told us no in handing over Al-Qaeda after the attacks. And we marched into stomp out terror. We did that job. And even before that, like the Afghan people are a people of, of perseverance and endurance and, and overcoming because their history is one of invasion, whether it was from the United Kingdom, whether it was from the Soviet slash Russians, whether it was from us. So I just, I, I think I have a lot of frustration right now that we're getting a lot of those oh, how could this have happened? And we feel so bad when the whole entire global community failed this specific state. And now we're into one of those um, performative pray for blank moments. And I I just have a lot of frustration watching what's coming out and helping people understand that and helping people understand that there is there is so much context and history that got us to this moment and we're focused on a very small piece, but really truly this understanding and this, this recognition um, that four presidents couldn't build a nation in Afghanistan. And and actually, instead of y'all listening to me say it, why don't I let the president take it from here? There was no status quo of stability without American casualties after May one. There was only a cold reality of either following through on the agreement to withdraw our forces or escalating the conflict and sending thousands more American troops back into combat in Afghanistan, lurching into the third decade of conflict. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. But if Afghanistan is unable to mount any real resistance to the Taliban now, there is no chance that one year, one more year, five more years, or 20 more years, of U.S. military boots in the ground would have made any difference. Here's what I believe to my core. It is wrong to order American troops to step up when Afghanistan's own armed forces would not. Exactly what the president said, in my personal opinion. The mission was done. Al-Qaeda has been defeated in Afghanistan. Osama bin Laden was killed. The job was done, and it's very hard for me understanding the humanitarian piece of this and understanding the struggles of this to really be on the side that we are expected to be on, in my personal opinion, as uh, as a country. For 20 years, there was training that was done in that state, in that place, to build up a, a defense, if you will, 
for the country. And America has seen this countless times. I, I had a tweet where I named off Brazil, Cuba, Iraq, um, Vietnam. There's so many examples of how we are not a place that can build a country when we're the country that says how important it is for people to stand up and rise up for themselves. However, in this specific situation, we showed up and told the people what they wanted. And I think we're seeing the repercussions of that. And even beyond that, the horrors that are to come from the Taliban, and I want to make it very clear that my frustration here and and my pieces here are not a, a validation or justification of this group. But the horrors and, and challenges that we are to still face from the Taliban did not impact the people who were fighting. Men went AWOL in Afghanistan in their own country, not because they, and I'm, I'm making and painting some broad swats and having some assumptions here, which are fair, but not because they were afraid of what was to come, but because they recognized that no matter what happened, they would not lose anything. The women of Afghanistan are the ones who are at great risk because this group has a barbaric ide- uh, ideology of what sexuality means in a state and in, in a political scheme. And it's it's that that I still think we're missing out in this context. I do think media is starting to change their narrative and we're starting to move and understand who the Taliban is and how their ideas have morphed and all of these pieces. But really, truly, just as the president mentioned, there were individuals who were prepped for this moment and who were supposed to provide some sense of stability to allow the government to figure things out. And those men disappeared because, and I I stand by this, they knew that what was to come with the Taliban was not going to impact them negatively. And that's that's my frustration. That's my reaction, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with a lot of what you said, if not everything. And, you know, I got to say, like, for me, like, when all this was happening, I felt um, a little conflicted. Like, like, I think it's a good decision to get out of Afghanistan. But watching the Taliban take over the country with such speed... Um, kind of left me feeling bad about the situation. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Torrance earlier about this and he was saying that like, we kind of feel ashamed that it happened because, because it was our decisions mm-hmm. that kind of brought these consequences as yeah. a country. And that's uncomfortable to think, to think about it like yeah. that. And I agree with that. I, I think that's kind of what I'm feeling. Listening to Biden's speech, there's not really anything I disagreed with him in there. Like, if we had kept troops there, how much longer would they have been there for? Mm-hmm. Five, 10, 20 years, I think is what he said. And, like, I agree to an extent that it's not – like, we gave we gave Afghanistan's military, like – I mean, what, $2.4 trillion currently with an estimated projection of uh, – what is it? The AP says $6.5 trillion by 2050, like – that is a large, large effort that yeah. we put in. And I, I think just like you and Torrance mentioned, only to look right now and see all of that money, all of the effort, again, two decades, just go on flames in under a week. Yeah, and, and you know, Biden 
Biden's been saying like, look, we gave the Afghan military the training. We gave them money. We gave them air support. The Taliban doesn't have um, uh, an air force. And we, we were with them for a long time. And now the minute we leave, they weren't able to hold their country. Like, like obviously like our actions of being in Afghanistan for 20 years now play a role somewhat in this. But at the end of the day, like, like it's not a hundred percent our fault that a lot of Afghans, Afghanistan's military just kind of crumbled in the face of the Taliban. And, you know, Biden's getting all this criticism and, you know, like there probably is some criticism to do. Like we definitely need to, we probably needed to figure this out a long time ago, but we need to get the people who are involved at all um, with us, with the U S and with NATO and other, um, our other allies in the country. We need to figure out the visa program. We can't get slowed down by bureaucracy. We need to get them out of the country. So the Taliban doesn't, like revenge kill them and whatnot. And we need to do that, like for those people, like that matters. And I think that like my frustration with this very complicated issue is like not so much, I mean, I'm just not shocked, I think, by the Taliban taking over. I, the war has been kind of a waste to me, like Biden and Secretary Blinken said, um, we did what we came there to do. We got bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we took out Al Qaeda to the best that we could in Afghanistan, and that like that was kind of our mission. And that was what Biden put plainly a decade yeah. ago. That was a decade ago. Yeah, and I I think too, uh, I come out so forcefully here about context too because. In America, we have a tendency to want to place blame, right? We want to be able to compartmentalize and say, this is where we went wrong. Here's who we're associating it with. And here's how we move forward. But this is one situation where we can't simplify it that well. Mm-hmm. Do I think that Biden has some fault here? 100%. Hey, hey. He, yeah, but but is I don't like, I guess what my frustration is, is some of the, the blame that's being put on him exactly. is... Not only unfair, but there's just some really, some of it's unfair. Some of it's really fucking stupid too. Yeah. Like we can't ignore the fact that the reason we are here, and I I don't like this either because I don't agree with the Biden administration always using Trump as an excuse to either continue a bad policy or, or get away. But the Trump administration broke some very important foreign policy perspectives in United States structure by coming up with an agreement with the Taliban and saying, if you don't attack us for a certain amount of time, we will agree to be out in May. And while the Republican Party might try to erase this from their platform, while the <laughs> Trump campaign might try to pretend like this didn't happen, they were arguing against Joe Biden for waiting until September to pull out troops, which we see how important that little bit of time was. But again, I stick to that context because... This is not squarely on, and I'm going to get controversy for this, this is not squarely on George Bush's shoulders, Obama, Trump, Biden. This goes back to Gerald Ford. This goes back to kings in the UK, where Afghanistan has always been seen as a strategic opportunity, never as a state in and of itself and a place where humanity is deserved. And because that has been consistent globally, 
the people have never really truly seen the the sense of compassion and the sense of global support that it deserved. And you can argue this is because of issues with the Taliban and all of all of that space. But again, just as we've talked about, the mission was never to go in and overthrow their government. No, we weren't the, nation building here. The mission was to stomp out terrorism and get the people who attacked us. And we did those long ago. Yeah, a decade ago. Before Trump became president. Yet we were still there trying to nation build and trying to do all of these pieces that it, the people didn't ask for. And until uh, until the global community stops seeing Afghanistan as a strategic opportunity, we will continue to see failed policies like this. And I don't think what you're saying is controversial. I think what you're saying is that um, in the hit, in the last couple hundred years, there's been a, a lot of nations that have kept up the uh, uh, tradition, apparently, of invading Afghanistan and seeing mm-hmm. it as a strategic stronghold for their enemies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we can blame the last four presidents for continuing the policy. Well, I guess yeah. three three presidents because Biden's getting out. Eh. But um, I mean, he was vice president under Obama and signed on for more troops for a while, even with the drawdowns. I don't know if we blame them for beginning it, but we can blame them for continuing it. Yes. And, you know, this is one of those weird issues where to me, like, I think Biden made the right decision, even if it could have gone a little better. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I don't think there was a win for us in any of the situation. We were there too long. It didn't make sense for us to be there anymore. And no matter what we did, something like this was probably going to happen. Yeah. And like, like, I don't know, like, I think in a decade from now, we'll look back on this and we'll be like, it was a good thing that we got the fuck out of Afghanistan because we don't have a fucking any reason to be there. And we haven't for a long time. And I, I think too, to your P, to your point, the moment Afghanistan fell, fell was not immediately when the Taliban got to Kabul. It was when the president flew out. He he deserted his own country and and uh, issued a statement from wherever country he is. I'm sorry, I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Um, that he made the decision to ensure that there would be peace when the Taliban reached the capital. But I think that speaks so much to everything we've talked about so far of there genuinely was not a connection to the state at that point. There was no, there was no energy to protect or fight off or ward off this militant group that we are defined them as from, from doing what it did. Instead, the president of the, the country disappears and leaves his people to, to fend and fight for themselves and tells them to shelter in place and, and do what they can to not get caught. Um, caught up in the things that were happening but we don't even talk about that we are we in america are so focused on well biden shouldn't have left but that even if biden Biden shouldn't have left and the whole thing was an absolute failure and it all lands on the biden administration Mm -hmm. the whole war the whole war (laughs) it's like come on guys biden look i understand why why biden's putting some of this on the trump administration because biden was in this weird place where where how the Taliban fight is they fight in the spring, in the spring and summer months when it's warm, and then mm-hmm. it's pretty hard to do it in the winter, so they don't do it then. Yeah. 
Trump made a deal that said, um, don't kill us, uh, uh, any U.S. Yeah, personnel. Don't attack our forces. On May 1st, and here's some concessions, and we'll be out and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And Biden moved up the date because it just wasn't enough time. And that date was a little over three months after he became president. Like, yeah. that's an extremely short amount of time for him to figure that out. And the previous administration, of course, didn't actually have any plans to do anything. Nope. And they had a binder. They had a huge binder. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> That had a bunch of pages, but then when you opened the binder, the pages were blank. <laughs> I I cannot confirm, but um, I mean, I Kelly think and Mackie and he stood on the podium with the binder. That's the only reason I know it existed. I think it's I think it's notable here, like in that situation, Biden's faced with the situation where if he goes against the deal, like directly, the Taliban could start fighting the U.S. again, and that's mm-hmm. the reason why we haven't really heard about casualties in Afghanistan for the last few months is because there's a ceasefire. So I, I do understand to an extent that there was some interesting decisions made from the last administration that kind of, in a way, maybe had maybe had hamstrung Biden's administration a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's a, I think it's a good decision. And it's, I don't know, like, I think it's also notable, like what you were saying, the president fled, um, and that's kind of when Afghanistan really fell, even before they were like in the presidential palace, the Taliban were. Mm-hmm. Um, but like this takeover by the Taliban, for the most part, wasn't this extremely violent war or anything. No. Most of the Afghan army um, didn't even get to fire a shot if they wanted to at all, mm-hmm. whether that was desertion or because the districts or 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 capital cities or the uh, provinces had already made a deal with the Taliban yeah. um, and basically handed over they were like, <laughs> their territory to just them. Just don't raid or ransack or, or terrorize our people and we will let you in. Yeah. And the, the only, like the real people who actually fought in the Afghan military were the special forces that we trained. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they, there's no reason for them to die if everyone around them's already surrendered. Yeah. So they put on some, some of them, there was reports that they put on civilian clothes and they're getting out of there. And look, I don't blame them for that. Like, <laughs> what are you going to do? You're, there's like five of you that are like ultra awesome, but how mm-hmm. are you going to fight like thousands of Taliban? Yeah. I, I don't, uh, I, I, that's my, my issue with this is like, I think the, the blame a little bit should be on Biden and a lot of it should just be on, being in this war for 20 years, that wasn't entirely Biden's fault. Well, I'm going to continue to make the case for why I, I place this again globally, but also I'm I'm going to focus a little bit more on the former president of Afghanistan because there were talks happening. There were negotiations and, and peace deals happening and reporting that came out kind of towards the end of the Trump administration, start of the Biden administration focused in on and recognized that the disagreement that we face here was due to the president's inability to compromise. A part of the negotiations were focused on building a unity government, and the president squarely said, no, I refuse to concede and find an opportunity to build um, a government that unifies with the Taliban. That is a non-starter. I want the Taliban to completely be dis, um, disassembled and then we can we can enter. And I, I think back to all the conversations we've had on bipartisanship, right? Of If you're coming to a table, you have to have some onus that you are not going to get that big shiny present. You're going to get the smaller one next to it. 
And due to his inability to even accept or consider what would it mean if we had a parliament that, while you might not agree with their tactics, while you might not agree with their things, has a a following and has a, a real culture in our country, what would it mean if we came together and built a government that allowed both voices and did whatever was necessary? Because of his inability to do that, it reinforced and gave the Taliban a reason to say, these negotiations were fake from the start. We're going to keep fighting. And I'm, what, two, three podcasts ago, um, one of my above the fold stories was the fact that the president came out vehemently and said that the negotiations were completely off and the Taliban was never really in it to start. I, I argue now, knowing what's happened, seeing the president leave his people, were there really and truly no other alternatives before we got to this moment? Or were there, was there a bit of ego, dick measuring, if you will, that crippled the possibility that there could have truly been peace that happened? There were real genuine conversations that were occurring. Um, but instead, we're, we're where we are today. Yeah, and I just kind of want to like go. I want to go back to um, a tweet I saw from, of course, um, a very vile human being, um, Stephen Miller. Ooh. Oh my God, he's terrible. Uh, he's very racist and anti-immigration, and will do terrible things to human beings, as we saw in the Trump administration. Uh, 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 to to show why if you're not white you're bad. Mm. Um, Stephen Miller tweeted, "It is becoming increasingly clear that Biden and his radical deputies will use their cat- catastrophic debacle in Afghanistan as a pretext for doing to America what Angela Merkel did to Germany and Europe." And then he says, "The Biden team wants to grow this number far beyond." hit this initial group into the many hundreds of thousands. And this is in reports that the Biden administration will take in 2,500 Afghan mm-hmm. refugees. And again, there's a ton of Afghan uh, Afghans that are, um, that helped the U S whether they started, uh, whether they did USAID stuff, whether they helped us mm-hmm. militarily, um, there's translators, there's even people that I don't know if they get visas or not. I think they should that uh, started, like community programs and nonprofits yeah. to to further develop the country. Mm-hmm. And um, what Stephen Miller is saying here is that, oh, the Biden administration wants Afghans to come in. And of course, anyone from the Middle East is a fucking terrorist. It doesn't matter who they are. And that's not true at all. Um, Canada is taking in over 20,000 refugees. And I think in the words of, of, of Pod Save America host Tommy Vitor, who used to be a foreign policy advisor for President Obama, mm-hmm. we should be taking in 10 times that. Um, that's, that's like the one thing that I think is very serious about this is, is getting those people that helped us that are in genuinely fear of their lives because yeah. of the Taliban. Uh, we need to get them out of there. Even if we need to process them in a different country, we need to get them out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, before the Taliban get to them. And like that, that probably could have been organized a bit better. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to add that's, that's one separate part, right? That's one separate part, right? Like we talked a lot about how it's being perceived and the perceptions that are being created 
as it relates to uh, the withdrawal of our troops and and the the fall of Afghanistan. But from a humanitarian space, it's hard not to feel remorse and to feel guilt. And I kind of said this in the onset, I challenge from this country specifically, is it performative or is it genuine? Because we all saw the images of um, the planes leaving Afghanistan and the videos of Afghan people running on a tarmac alongside a U.S. military plane and then even got to see how many people were crammed in this plane as it was happening. And because of their fear of retaliation or fear of, of any type of act, they were holding on to the side of the plane as if they could, they could just ride it in the air to, to freedom, to safety, whatever, insert whatever term you want there. I've been watching newsrooms, so freedom was the first word that popped in my head. And then you see people as they fall from the sky off these planes. And it's, it's important to separate out these two facts of the humanitarian side versus the strategic slash blame game side. And that piece, I'm glad that we're able to have that real conversation, but truly for the people of Afghanistan and to, to see the genuine fear that they have that I feel safer holding on to a bomber as it takes off than waiting or living my um, life in this state just spoke so much value. Um, yeah. To everything. Yeah, no. And like we said before, our hearts go out all to all those people. It's just like, obviously we had a lot to do with Afghanistan's instability, but the fact of the matter was, is it was, it wasn't stable beforehand unless you count Taliban rule beforehand as stable. And we're not really going to know, you know, the Taliban saying that they're going to respect women's rights to some extent and whatnot. And honestly, we're not really going to know like how much they mean that until we start really seeing a rule a lot more and which will probably come in the following weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, there's just, I guess like it, we, you get into this debate of like, okay, um, we weren't there to nation build, no matter how bad the Taliban is. That's, we weren't there to do that. And for those that think that we should be there to nation build, it, it failed. We just Miserable. watched it fail. Miserable. Like if we weren't, our, our objective our objective got muddied. We were there a decade later than we should have been. Some argue we should have never been there at all. And now, now it's gone because we left, which just kind of proves that the weird, weirdly muddled mess that we got ourselves into and somehow started nation building in the middle of that um, didn't work. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's just... It, it's like there's a lot of things that we can look at and be like, holy shit, like this is a terrible situation and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like it was not a there, there's not really a good reason to keep troops there. Mm -hmm. And there's not. The two longest wars in American history are now over. And it's hard not to walk away and recognize a few things, and especially for our generation. Um I think we grew up understanding that 
the U.S. at one point in time were the global police and the people never fully agreed with that and it's caused tensions and, and, and. But specifically that we were living in a post-imperialistic um, society while there were still some imperialistic actions occurring. Now that the two longest wars in American history have ended, uh, I hope and and pray, I guess, that we recognize the, the history stories that we used to tell. We, we recognize how we've always talked about America. It's a, a country that had people rise against a tyrant because they wanted their voices to be heard and took control of their country as a people and, and so forth. Never in history has imperialism worked. In Iraq and Afghanistan, prove that we can't reinstitute those type of policies and we can't continue to be that type of nation. We can, as a global community, work together to support and 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 help heal failures from before. Um, but then you look at Israel and um, Palestine and see that we aren't doing it there either. I really truly hope, and I know it's not going to happen, and I know this is an optimistic side of me, but I really truly hope that there there is a capacity in a space where we recognize that this can no longer be the policy of a state, individual, or um, coalition like NATO to determine that we don't like X, so we're going to do Y. It has to be a full communication between the people of that region, the people of that that country, and an effort to support them in a humanitarian way, if there's ever going to be a semblance of peace in this area. Yeah, and just one one last thing on that. Um, like I said earlier, we should feel uncomfortable seeing this as we reckon with the decisions that, that we made as a country 20 years ago. All right. Take us on a tangent, Torrance. Thank you, Caleb. Um, this has been said before, quite frankly, uh, but it is it, at this point in this global pandemic and how this has humanitarily really ravaged um, both our country specifically and the rest of the world, the amount of death, the amount of sickness, um, the amount of economic um, impact that this pandemic has had has been devastating to too many. And I think that at this point that it is really frustrating um, with the Delta variant now spreading uh, across the US, affecting the reopenings that have taken place, affecting the reopenings of schools, of businesses, um, essentially really backpedaling on some of the progress that we made, especially the economic investment we made in that progress. Um, I think that it's just getting um, completely unacceptable if, as if it hasn't been for a very long time um, for, for grown adults, alleged adults to be speaking out of their ass about conspiracy theories, uh, talking about um, the vaccinations or, or medical recommendations about, about this pandemic at this point, um, who who have done no research, who ha have no understanding of the science behind the vaccines, the science behind viral infections, the science behind the um, public health 
protocols that have been recommended by the CDC and other health professionals. I just think that it's absolute bullshit and it's completely dishonest. Um, in addition to that, for those people who who think that it's just their specific civil liberty to not wear a mask, it's their civil liberty not to get a vaccine, um, that's absolutely fine. Um, but when, when, when you're not taking a vaccine because you don't trust the medicine, you don't trust the recommendations of these health professionals, when you when you don't trust the recommendations of these health professionals to wear a mask and to socially distance, um, then I, I really expect that you aren't going to trust those medical professionals to save your life when you do get COVID, that you aren't going to want the ventilator because that's just fake science too that's going to save your life, that if you're going to stand by your civil liberty to do whatever you want, then also just stand by your civil liberty to deal with the consequences as well. At this point, um, it, it is ridiculous. It is com it is consistently irresponsible. Um, and I think that having this conversation in any way that uh, respects the position of my civil liberty is to put other people in harm's way unknowingly or knowingly is disgusting. It is a perversion of our constitution. And quite frankly, uh, it, it just makes you a shit human at this point. Yeah, if I could just add on, I think there's also like, based off what I've seen, and even based off some people I know, I think there's a difference between what you describe, and those who have a little bit of hesitancy, but aren't, it's not because of civil liberties or conspiracy theories. Like, I don't want to, for me personally, I don't want to label everyone as that, although I fully agree with you that the people who are doing that, especially some of the elected leaders in this country, um, is disgusting behavior. I could not agree more. Um, and, and, and like most other things, in complete bad faith. Oh, yeah, completely bad faith. Um, Caleb, how about you go ahead and take us on a tangent? Okay, my tangent today, Torrance, is something we talked about before we recorded this episode, but it has to do with seltzer. Mm, okay. And I'm talking about spiked seltzer, like, you know, white claw, you know, no, no laws with a claw or whatever. Yes, sir. And I'm also talking about like sparkling water, like LaCroix. I think it's bad. And a lot of people disagree with me. I think it's all nasty. And I understand a spike seltzer more than a regular one, but I am not the kind of person that asks for sparkling water when I'm at a restaurant. And I got to say that for me, seltzers don't have any flavor to them. And I definitely don't drink them for enjoyment. Me neither. Do you have any thoughts? Me neither. I don't, I, 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 and I did share this with you before when we talked, when you brought it up offhand, um, that I love beer, always will love beer, uh, I concur. Oberon to the death of me. Uh, it is my, it is my favorite beverage next to water. Um, and I would choose to drink beer if not for obviously its contribution in carbs and fat, um, um, for, for enjoyment. But typically when I'm drinking a white claw, as I have, um, this summer, it is to drink, right? To to to, to get a little bit um, buzz, a little bit tipsy mm -hmm. with the friends socially, um, and so oh, yeah. and so. I drink that because it actually helps me not get as bad of a hangover. Um, at 27 years old, I I have started to get quite the hangover, even if I you know don't even if I don't drink that much. Um, and I found that drinking white claws has done wonders for improving 
uh, my day after feeling. So I have decided to drink what I believe to be a very subpar beverage. Um, and I only drink one flavor of the White Claw, uh, the black cherry flavor, because quite frankly, that's just tolerable and the rest is disgusting. And I know that that's an unpopular opinion, but quite frankly, it's the truth. But then again, I don't like LaCroix either. So I mean, it's probably just a, I'm not into flavored seltzers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, so I don't, I don't, I don't think you're a bad person if you're drinking it like that, you know, but I think you're a bad person if you like it. So <laughs> I'm definitely uh, exaggerating. I don't think you're a bad person if you drink seltzer. I just don't think it's good. I just don't think you have good taste in alcoholic beverages though. Absolutely. Yeah. I won't, I won't uh, ask you for any recommendations. I drink it recreationally, recreationally. Well, that's our show. I'm Torrance. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week. Thank you.